0: Hello, I'm Michael Wimmer, and welcome to the Pros and Pros podcast, a podcast devoted to the exploration of great sports training. Today's episode features John Eisenberg. here to talk about his new history of the NFL's early days, entitled The League. The League focuses on the intertwining lives of five NFL owners, George Hallis, George Preston Marshall, Burt Bell, Art Rooney, and Tim Mara, all of whom are in the NFL Hall of Fame today, and on the difficult choices they had to make together to ensure the league's survival. It's a book that tells how the NFL grew from a small obscure organization whose future was unassured into a league that is now a multi-billion dollar colossus. The league shows that the NFL's success was due to a collective passion shared by these five men and their decision-making that always put the well-being of the league itself above any of their own team's interests. It's a great book for any football fan or for anyone curious about how the NFL developed from a small enterprise that was fighting for its survival into the powerful and popular entity it is today. Without further ado, Here's John Eisenberg. Today I have with me John Eisenberg, the author of the recently released The League, which is a history of the early days of the NFL. Good to have you here with me today.
1: Uh, well, thank you for having me.
0: First off, what led you to want to tell the story of the early NFL?
1: Well, I had always, this is my 10th book, and and I had always, I'm always on the lookout for sort of rich storytelling uh uh, palette, you know, and, and 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 this always qualified as that. Uh, I had done some football history uh, before, written about the 40s, the 50s. I'd written, I grew up in Dallas, and I'd written a couple of books about the early days of pro football in Texas and in Dallas, and always enjoyed doing that. And it, it, it intrigued me just to go back farther. And it finally, just a, it sort of the light bulb sort of came on. I said, why don't you just go to the beginning and see, try to figure out, uh you know where a story was in 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 the early days i mean i'd seen the movie leatherheads and i i knew that there's a lot of crazy characters and and a lot of crazy times and stuff going on the the key for me was to find the story in all that but i knew a story existed so uh, there was never a doubt that it was going to be an interesting uh, era to write about
0: absolutely and the book largely focuses on the relationship between five owners. You got George Hallis, Burt Bell, George Preston Marshall, Art Rooney, and Tim Mara. Why did you choose to focus on these five men in particular?
1: Well, that was a key part of it. Uh, uh, before I uh, when I signed the deal with Basic Books in New York, uh, the 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 idea was to. Uh, figure out how the NFL. Uh, the germ of the idea was to figure out how the league got through the early years when it was really a failing enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, it was losing money, and franchises were folding, and no one cared. It was just a like a fifth-rate sport, and it was like how uh, the story became how how did they get through that? And when you when you study the the history of it, you realize that it was really in the hands of just a few key guys, owners that that got into the league uh, over a period of about 12 or 13 years and they became the core group and the the nfl was flailing early in the depression and these guys more or less put their heads together and started tinkering with the rules and the framework of the sport Uh, they brought in things like a championship game a draft and it just started to grow from there so the question was Let's figure out who who the real integral guys are. or were that that took the sport by the lapels and and just carried it uh, and ushered it forward. and so th- those five were very easy to choose. they They were they were key guys, and they were the inner circle. There were a couple of other guys in the inner circle, and the big decision I made was to exclude them and mm-hmm. and Cur- Curly Lambeau from Green Bay was one of them, and I, I left him out. I know Packers fans will be mad. You know, I wrote a book on the Packers. I hope they're not too mad at me. But he—he uh, he didn't own the Packers. That they were—they were owned by the community. And plus, if you study the minutes from the early meetings, he just wasn't quite as involved in all of the rules and the changing—the uh, changes that went on. And uh, then the other one was uh, the original bid. They still own the Cardinals. The original bid will. And. Uh, uh, you know, Charles Bidwell, and I decided not to include him. He really, George Howells brought him into the league, and he pretty much did what Howells wanted. So mm-hmm. so I just didn't see him as a key decision maker.
0: Yeah. Uh, what was it that stood out to you about these five men as individuals, even distinct from their collective devotion to the league?
1: Well, what certainly stood out to me after a while, I realized, I think we were looking, I always like my books to to uh explore larger themes and and uh, things that go beyond sports if possible and and i i think in in this case you're looking at these five guys it it is pretty much uh the the story of 20th century america in a lot of ways not to get too high and mighty about it but these are these are immigrant uh stories these guys were all sons not all of them but uh all the majority of them sons of immigrants really uh, their parents came over and uh, uh, certainly Tim Mara, you know, was an Irish cop's son in lower Manhattan and, and uh, George House's parents came over as, as young people. And, and so there was there was uh, it's, it's an immigrant tale. And and so I definitely felt that uh, these were not wealthy men. They were not titans of business like today's owners. No one was going to swoop in and save them. The, you know, they were on their own. And so it just struck me as really a classic story of 20th century American entrepreneurship. I mean, all they had was an idea and, and they stuck with it. They certainly didn't have money or any safety net. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, the, the America that they sold it to was an America that was changing with the, you know, the immigrants and, and the way the population was changing. So I just found all that backstory to be pretty interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. And uh, one, of the, one of the themes in the book that you kind of bring up a few times is how the owners would often make decisions that weren't beneficial for their own teams, but nevertheless help the league as a whole. Could you give an example of that?
1: Well, sure. It, it, it's hard to believe when you look at today's NFL, where they're making $14 billion a year in annual revenues, and Roger Goodell says, well, we want to go to twenty-five uh it seems like uh you know all they're really worried about is how how high they can get that it's it, it's hard to believe that that uh, these guys uh, you go back 70 80 90 years and and the greater good was what mattered to them they weren't trying to get rich they were just trying to make this thing work and uh they realized early on even though they were fighting each other on Sundays and trying to beat each other they were partners in football in the football business they had to work together and they needed a competitive league. And so I would say the best example was the draft. Uh, in the mid-30s, the Giants and the Bears are are completely dominating. Now, they're the best teams in the league. Burt Bell in Philadelphia has started the Eagles. He can barely win a game. And, and the system for distributing college talent was, well, there wasn't one. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. – it was a free-for-all. You go get whoever you wanted, and since the Giants and Bears were selling more tickets and winning games, they had more money. They got the best players, and it just perpetuated itself. So, Burt Bell uh, comes to a league meeting and says, gentlemen, you know, I- I'm going to get run out of business here, and uh, it's not very interesting to just continually get smacked in the face, so why don't we try this draft where the worst team gets the first pick, and then, uh, you know, he, he- the-, the-, the idea that it it still exists today the worst team gets the first pick the second worst team gets the second pick and slowly but surely that will level the playing field and George Howells with the Bears Tim Marrow with the Giants immediately saw well this is going to undermine our domination however the league needs this we have to do this because competition is the foundation of, of any sports league so they they backed it immediately didn't even blink and you know sure enough in the long run of course it, it undermined their their domination but uh, it really is what set up the league to be competitive and interesting going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and kind of another subplot of the book is um, George Preston Marshall and his um, racism. And the NFL had originally featured black players, but then they vanished from team rosters in 1934 and remained that way for over a decade. It, it's generally agreed upon that Marshall is to blame for this, but how was he able to convince the other owners to go along with making the league wide only?
1: Well, that's a good question. Uh, there, there's very little record on that. Uh, everybody, it's it's like, uh, you know, when you, you shine a light on something at night and you see all the bugs start scrambling, you know, for mm-hmm. that have come out on your kitchen table or, or, or something like that. Uh, everybody runs from this. And uh, there is no, there's a document in the Pro Football Hall of Fame that has the official minutes of every league meeting uh, from the beginning, 1920 through the present, an amazing volume. And there is not one word uh, about racial, uh, the racial composition of the league in this massive volume. So it, it, it took place after hours, whatever took place, took place after hours, after these meetings in private. It's very hard to find any official record. And so there, there just is none. You, you pretty much have to, have to suppose. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just the timeline is, is overwhelmingly uh, pointed. Uh, I mean, there are African-Americans in the league in the early 30s. Not a lot, but there are some. George Marshall gets into the league. You know, a uh, uh, son of Dixie, uh, l- literally descended from Confederate soldier, uh, Confederate officers, mm-hmm. and within two years, who and, and was just out front with how he felt about it. And within two years, every all the African Americans are gone, and they're they continue that way through World War Two. So it just seems clear.
0: Yeah, in a way, that lack of documentation almost makes it seem even more suspicious. Like they had an inkling of the fact that we don't want to leave a paper trail here, but we also yeah. know what we need to do. For yeah,
1: yeah, and, and and these are men of substance. I mean, they they are not. Uh, I mean, they weren't. Uh, certainly, Art Rooney, who started the Pittsburgh uh, Steelers, they weren't. They were the Pirates first. Mm-hmm. Uh, was very tolerant. I mean, one of his best friends was a, a Negro League owner of a Negro League team in Pittsburgh, a you know famous Negro League team, and he he barnstormed with them and was very tolerant, open on, on this situation. However. Uh, he did go along with it, so with uh, what was happening in the NFL. And, and George Hallis, uh, during the 12 years when, when the league was all white, he tried to break the, the all white uh, policy or whatever it was. He tried to sign some – he wanted to sign a player from UCLA and ultimately did not. Again, no paper trail. So these, these are men of sort of the, – the, they weren't just determined to do this. So, But, uh, you know, it, it was the status quo in the league, and in the end they didn't challenge it.
0: Mm-hmm. It was just sort of one of those things that just was gone along with.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just gone along with.
0: And, and why did the owners um, continue to stand by Marshall, even when it became more and more clear that many of his stances were hurting the league and its reputation?
1: Well, that, that's a great question. They were, they were friends of his. They were loyal. And it, it, it is certainly uh, not their shining hour. Uh, they, had, they had worked with him. He was an incredibly influential guy uh, in league uh, in the league history. I mean, there's a yin and yang to Marshall. He pretty much uh, had the league open, you know, open up the league to the forward pass and, and came up with a championship game. And the fact that they should split the league into two divisions, all sorts of positive stuff, offset by this horrible negative. So, and if you look, you're going back to the 30s, the 40s, the early 50s, um, there was just a lot of that. I mean, baseball was segregated, and and many American institutions, including the United States Army, were segregated, and so it just wasn't that unusual to accept this. Uh, and uh, certainly, uh, sh- it's shameful in hindsight. It's not correct, uh, and it looks terrible. Uh, but uh, you know, you when you when you go back and put yourself in that era. And when you consider, uh, you know, it, it, it took uh, you know, an executive action to desegregate the U.S. Army three yeah. years after World War II, you, you understand the sort of uh, how easy it was just to accept what was going on. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And and uh, you mentioned that book of, uh, of all the league's minutes, which I'm sure was a absolutely essential resource for you. But w- was research especially difficult for you considering the lack of coverage the NFL had in its early days, along with the fact that all the principal characters you write about have long since passed away?
1: Yeah, it was a little tricky uh, in that regard. As I said, it's my 10th book, and uh, they're all different. And there have been books I've written where I had hundreds of people to interview, and Uh, That was great. Uh, It was wonderful to have a record like that. In this case, obviously not. Uh, So uh, as far as finding written material, there was enough. Um, You had to really dig a little bit. But some papers, Chicago Tribune in particular, uh, really from an early uh, period in sports history, accepted pro football. And uh, uh, Hallis was tight with Arch Ward, who was the sports editor of the Tribune. And, of course, there's the man who invented the baseball all-star game and the, the college football all-star game, which no longer exists, which, which had the NFL champions playing the college incoming uh, rookies every year in August, which was a huge g- uh, event for a while on the sports calendar. That's Arch Ward. And Arch was running the Chicago Tribune sports page. And so they were looking for something to put in their Monday section. And, and so the NFL filled that bill. So between all that, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, uh, the Giants were successful quickly. So there was a fair amount of stuff in the New York papers. Um, you, you found things, uh, mm-hmm. things were written, uh, the hall of fame had a nice, uh, clip and microfilm file on them. And for, for live interviews, uh, the sons and daughters and grandchildren of these men, uh, a lot of them are still in the NFL and had a lot of recollections and thoughts and, uh, so I went to all of them, and they were all great. I mean, it's uh, that's as a stand-in to the people themselves. So it's the best I could do. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because a lot of those franchises have uh, stayed in the family since uh, the owner's original death, I believe, right?
1: Yeah, well, the, the Rooneys are still, uh, you know, the with the steel on the Steelers, and uh, uh, George Howells' daughter Virginia McCaskey is in her 90s. She owns the Chicago Bears. Mm-hmm. And so she's, uh, you know, I went to Chicago and interviewed her. She's in her mid nineties, very sharp, uh, you know, delicate uh, woman. You know, ninety five years old. I when I told people that uh, that I had interviewed Virginia McCaskey, people in the league, they all said, "Golly, so that?" I mean, that that's like interviewing George Washington's daughter or something like that. I mean, you are really going back. So a great source there. And uh, so uh, Tim Mayer's grandson's running the Giants. So yeah, they're, they're, they're still in the league. Mm-hmm.
0: Was there any uh, part of the research process that you found particularly enjoyable? I mean, those aforementioned interviews, but was there anything else that really stood out to you as well?
1: Well, all of it was kind of interesting. Uh, the, going to the Hall of Fame, I found, uh, to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, that research library is really good. That's a nice place to hang your hat and go to work for a few days to, Absolutely. uh, just, uh, get in there and, uh, uh, you know, they have archivists and they'll work with you. And so, uh, just to sort of get lost in the, in, uh, you know, the hallways of the hall of fame that, that that's, that's as, as work goes, that's pretty good.
0: Mm-hmm. And and one thing uh, that I was not clear about as I read the book was why um, a lot of these early professional football teams opted to use the same nicknames as the baseball teams in the area, um, which seems just to me to have engendered lots of confusion rather than actually being a boon for the league.
1: Yeah, well, what it is, is it just what they were trying to do, they they weren't established. The football teams were were looking for any sort of way uh to gain recognition with the public at large because some of them were drawing three or four thousand fans a game and nobody and certainly you get outside the cities nobody knew nobody even knew they existed so the uh, baseball was far and away the most popular sport in america the national pastime in its glory in the 20s the 30s and the 40s uh and so uh they thought well we'll 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 go with Baseball, you know, if we associate ourselves with that, then uh, maybe that will lend us sort of an air of legitimacy and familiarity with the fans. And that was the hope. That is why they. I, I learned this time. That is why they called it the National Football League because George Hallis, who was a huge Cubs fan. Said that you know, in baseball, the National League, the Senior Circuit, as they call it, was was older and more established than the American League. So let's go with National because uh, it's more established. So they borrowed a lot of stuff from baseball because they just were trying to, to just glom onto it, basically, and get a, just a, a, a tiny bit of their market share.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot is made um, early in the book of how unengaging the NFL was in its, its early days. Um, just lots of blowouts, very little offense, um, with just a few dominant teams what concrete changes were made to rejuvenate the game, and how did those come to pass?
1: Well, uh, it's interesting you phrase it that way, because the pass was what it was, certainly was the biggest change. The game was just boring. It was just, uh, there was uh, not a ton of passing. I mean, there was some. Benny Friedman with the New York Giants was a great quarterback, and it was considered breathtaking when he 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 came to New York and would drop back and throw the ball and the crowd would ooh and ah we're talking about the late 20s early 30s it was exciting to watch a a guy throw the ball downfield the ball itself uh, was not conducive to it it was kind of a fat pumpkin and uh, the rules were uh, the rules uh, uh, hurt or or, are discouraged teams from passing if you're on the five yard line and you threw a ball into the end zone and it was incomplete uh the other team got the ball uh out on the 20 it was just uh that was the end of your drive you you know if you if you launched a pass that way so lots of rules to passing so the biggest thing they did in 1933 and uh, again it was marshall and george hallis that sort of spearheaded this was to open up the the forward pass uh make it eliminate those rules uh, the biggest one being uh, right up to that point, you had to be at least five yards behind the line of scrimmage to throw a pass. All that was gone. Suddenly, they could, you could just throw from anywhere. And that made the game mo- far more than just uh, one after the other, you know, a line plunge into the middle. Uh, suddenly, they were throwing the ball. That really helped. Uh, they created hash marks on the field. Uh, before then, uh, if a ball went out of bounds, uh, you would snap the ball over near the sideline. And for the next play and so it would just you were sort of crammed into a corner of the field and they they very intelligently made the realization if we move the play to the middle of the field the offenses have more room to operate and it becomes just a more wide open game so uh, things like that really really changed it and 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 the biggest and not the biggest but certainly the under the radar change that the NFL engineered uh, ahead of college football was unlimited substitutions. This was after World War II. Uh, you know, most guys played both ways. There were big limits on substitutions. And and so once the NFL uh, ended the limits on substitutions, it created two-platoon football. It created modern football, and it really created the the era of the quarterback. You didn't have to play defensive back anymore. You have these, these great passers and suddenly that's all they had to do so uh you know those three rules right there you talk about you go from sort of a boring game to one that is that is uh, uh pretty pretty exciting uh, and uh, a lot more interesting than the college game
0: mm-hmm. and and you speak obviously uh the focus of your book is about um the owners but you speak of benny friedman now and all he did to kind of open up the game were there any other pivotal players that stood out to you as you researched and wrote this book whose contributions you think have kind of been lost to time?
1: Well, Benny was definitely one, as far as lost to time, I mean, they're pretty famous. Bronco Nagurski uh, with, with the Bears. I think most people think uh, of him as just sort of the ultimate fullback sort of plowing into the line. He was a you know, the, the rough-and-tumble Bronco Nagurski, but he was actually the best passer uh, going there for a brief period in the early 30s. I didn't know that about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a real varied and, uh, you know, dimensional player. Red Grange, uh, of course, is a famous name. There's been many books written about him. But very quickly, he was the, the, the old swivel-hipped halfback, you know, the cover of Time magazine, and really the, the first famous football player. By the time, but he, he he tore up his knee and was never the same. But he sort of recreated himself as a as a very heady defensive back, receiver, super intelligent uh, player with the Bears. And uh, it was interesting. He had a long career as that player, not as the dar- the cover boy darling. And so these guys were are not cast as. As as you imagined, uh, you know, and, and I found that to be pretty interesting.
0: Absolutely. And, and an unsung hero of the book is Hugh Ray, um, a man who's hiring uh, George is called his greatest contribution to the NFL. What made his hiring such a great coup for the league?
1: Hugh Ray was a little uh, rules uh, referee and rules aficionado and from the, on the high school level in Chicago. Uh, he'd gone to the University of Illinois. Hallis knew him. And by the mid to late 30s, Hallis realized that the sport was getting better and more interesting, but the officiating was a disaster. They're, uh, they they did not know what the rule, they knew the rules, but they didn't always know how to apply them. They didn't, their signals weren't clear. There were, they didn't have authority. There were many controversies and uh, the rest would get challenged at games and i mean it's in some cases just flat out unprofessional i mean they had sports writers covering the, uh, the guys that were working for the papers were would uh, work the game as an official and then go up and write their game stories afterwards something that you just can't even conceive of uh, george hallis's brother worked huge games as an official his brother So obviously the the officiating needed to be cleaned up. So, uh, and Hallis, who benefited from it, again, this is another case of sort of selflessness. But Hallis, who benefited from it, realized it had to get better. So he brings in Shorty Ray, Hugh Ray, and uh, that he was just an immense behind the scenes figure. uh, Cleaned up the signals of the rules, charted things, realized not just the rules but just the mechanics of the game, like when a ball goes out of bounds uh how quickly does it get back in play uh you know how just literally retrieving the ball and getting it back onto the field realize that you had to speed that up that is that is where the game lagged. the fans got bored so not just rules but pace of play and sort of the presentation of the game Hugh Ray was uh just uh you know a massive figure when it comes to that sort of modernizing the NFL in terms of uh the mechanics of how the a game unfolded.
0: Yep, for sure. And 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 you've also spoken a bit about um the differences between the way the college game and the NFL were originally perceived, with the NFL being originally held in disregard compared to the college game. How was the NBA, how was the NFL able to overcome that stereotype and eventually make inroads in spite of this uh bias against them?
1: Well, this was a huge challenge because uh, you go back to the beginnings of the very beginnings of football, like 1870 through that century and into the 20th century and into the 1920s and 30s. Uh, football was regarded primarily as a character-building exercise for young boys. Uh, that was its considered its primary value to the world. Uh, you know, it would train soldiers. And let's take your boys and make men out of them. That's why there was all these lack of substitutions. You stayed on the field. It was physically exhausting. And uh, that was how football was seen as a sort of a brutish nobility is the way I would describe it. Uh, And uh, of course, so that, that meant high school football was important in certain parts of the country and college football. And so the idea of paying people to play uh, was considered just distasteful by much of the public. And really cheap, tawdry, and uh, just unseemly almost. I mean, if you go back and read the papers from like the 1920s, all of the famous college coaches would write these op-eds saying, I cannot believe they're paying people to play. You have to help us rid the rid the country of this scourge of paid football, they call it. So the NFL had a huge fight on their hands and uh, they just kind of stuck with it. That's that's the only way to describe it is, is they, they rolled out game, uh, you know, seasons year after year. And some guys wanted to play. It helped when Red Grange turned professional and in the mid twenties and sort of uh, that was uh, sort of a a milepost there. And as a few more legitimate guys or big-time guys turned pro, became less and less of just something that, that, uh, that no one would take on. And so slowly but surely, it became a, a more legitimate endeavor. And by the mid-30s, a lot of the best players were, were starting to think about the professional game, at least doing it after college. Still took a long time for that to take hold, but mm-hmm. it was just a slow winnowing of sort of the the antith- antipathy is really what uh, a lot of uh, the sports fans in America held towards pro football. It just slowly but surely went away.
0: Mm-hmm. And and apart from um, the rivalry they kind of had with college football to start out, the NFL also faced the advent of many rival leagues before it became the truly dominant league it is today. How was the NFL able to withstand all these threats and subsequently able to emerge from all these battles relatively unscathed?
1: Well, the there were a couple of early challenges. The American Football League uh, in the 1920s. There was another in the 1930s. These were not very good leagues. They 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 had a sort of a burst of excitement. The the, the Red Grange was in the one in the 1920s. But the, the, the pro football was barely going at that point, and uh, they they had trouble drawing crowds. And then Grange got hurt. The one known player in the league got hurt, and so that league was gone in one year. Uh, there was another team in the third—another league, I'm sorry, in the 30s. And that one lasted a little bit longer, but again, the ownership was not really committed. Uh, the one that was a real challenge was the All-American Football Conference after World War II. Those were wealthy guys. Uh, pro football was getting more popular, and some cities wanted in. And uh, the NFL was very careful, didn't really want to expand much. There wasn't a lot of money on the table, and they didn't want to carve it up even even more. So the, the All-American Football Conference uh, also rolled out some good teams. The Cleveland Browns were in that league. The San Francisco 49ers were in that league. And, but what happened there, uh, the NFL just – sort of ignored it. Uh, And it was a real challenge. The NFL said, well, we're the established league. We will prevail and uh, they will not last. And what happened in the All-American League was the Cleveland Browns were just vastly better than everybody. They won the the championship four straight years. They barely lost a game and the league got boring. Uh, They were just too dominant. And so even though there were some wealthy guys, uh, they they didn't stick with it. They got kind of bored and the whole thing just fell apart. The NFL – succeeded by by that point the draft was taking over it was a much more competitive league you didn't know who was going to win the bears and the giants weren't dominating anymore and so it was just more suspenseful and uh that was uh, sort of the the things that they had put in place in the 30s were taking root in the 40s and uh, they just had a better product than the all-american league and that enabled it to survive that challenge
0: And in 1946, Burt Bell uh, was named a league commissioner. What made him such a good pick to lead the league, and what was it that set him apart from previous league presidents and
1: commissioners? Well, they barely. uh, Burt Bell, uh, I mean, before that, uh, another person lost uh, in in the midst of history is Joe Carr, who there's been a biography written of him, was really the first commissioner. Uh, He had the title of president. And he ran the league. Uh, from he was a former sports writer, and and uh, he ran the league from the early 20s till he died in the late 30s. Uh, and then uh, he was replaced by Elmer Layden, who was one of the four horsemen uh, from Notre Dame, famous player and coach. And he was a nice figurehead, but uh, sort of not very not. He didn't rule. He did. I mean, he just didn't have a a strong mind of, of what to do as a ruler of the league. And suddenly then, at the end of World War II, Leyden was a big name and sort of a benign leader. And this All-American League is coming in and George Hallis, who basically ran the league, realizes we got a challenge on our hands here. We need to fight. And so he, they wanted one of their own. I mean, Elmer Layden had not played pro football. They wanted one of their guys, this inner circle. Somebody who understood pro football would fight for it. Burt Bell was a raconteur, loud voice. He had grown up wealthy in Philadelphia and on Main Line. He had blown all his money at the betting window at Saratoga. And then he married a showgirl and stopped drinking, sobered up, and had never met a stranger, could tell a story, but yet he had these Great survival skills. He just sort of had an instinct for knowing what how, what pro football needed. The draft being the best example of all. And so they just said, "We're going to put Bird in charge." He was he had started the Eagles. He'd sold out. He was running uh, the Steelers with uh, with. Uh, Art Rooney, who was his best friend. And so he was in a position where he could take on the role of commissioner. The other guys were still either coaching or running their teams. So Burt could do it. So they, they put him in charge, and it was just a brilliant move because he really battled the AAFC well. He had the right approach. And then you get to the 50s, and things are really changing. There's sort of more modern issues, how to carve up television money, uh, what to do with a players' union which was developing. And so Bert uh, sort of navigated it. Uh, that's a minefield. and and Bert navigated that as well, and then he died, which was unfortunate. but uh, uh, so he was just a key key figure at a key time in the league history.
0: And, and, and despite the fact that none of these five men that you profile came from Men's Family Wealth, apart from Bell, who, who squandered it, how were they able to keep the league going in spite of their financial limitations when pro football was not really on the radar compared to boxing and horse racing and uh, the league itself was failing to make money?
1: Well, there's a couple of different stages. In the early, I mean, uh, George Hallis, one thing that I learned in this book, uh, George Hallis really of modest means and he barely made it for many years. The Bears were 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 struggling. Uh, he took second jobs. He he ran businesses. He he just did whatever he could. Uh, he 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 took the money out of his kids' college savings accounts. He wrote IOUs. One year, the most has to be the most amazing thing I found. One year, I think it was 1932. Uh, he didn't have the money to pay his players. So at the end of the year, he gives, tells Bronco Nagurski and Red Grange, I'll give you an IOU for your salary, I promise you. And they took it. They took them. That was the most amazing thing uh, of all. They, you know, these guys said, all right, we'll take your IOU. An unbelievable show of faith in, in what they saw down the line. So at that point in the league's history, I mean, you know, they, they were just doing whatever it took uh, to get by. Uh, and and certainly that continued to be the case for some of these guys. Art Rooney, who he never worked a day in his life, he made his money at the racetrack. Uh, they were just trying to get by. The ones that had a little more means, uh, Tim Mara was a legal bookmaker in New York at the horse racing track and a successful legal bookmaker. He had some money, and then the Giants were pretty quickly successful. So uh, you know he had a little bit more money uh, and uh, operated with a little bit more margin for error. And George Marshall also uh, was successful in business in the laundry business. So he had a little reserve capital uh, there and enabled them to get through. But uh, again, you know, they, they, they they poured a lot of what they had into these teams after a while, they got to be bigger businesses and more players, larger payroll, travel expenses. And it, it, they, they easily could have gone under at many times, but they somehow just, uh, uh, you know made just enough money to keep going and uh and and then radio came in that helped it gave them some some rights fees there uh, just one thing after the other, whatever they could do to just keep this thing going mm-hmm.
0: and and were there any stories that really hammered home for you the differences between the early n f l as compared to what it would later become?
1: Well, certainly the one that I mentioned where, uh, (laughs) you know, the players, you know, the players are taking IOUs from the owner, Um, certainly not something we would see in today's NFL. Uh, There there was that. Um, What's incredible in hindsight is how selfless these guys were. Um, During the war, and the league barely survived the war, uh, nobody... Uh, you know, the, the aside from the fact that many of the players were in the military, fans didn't have money uh, to or the time to to go to these games. The league uh, was down to seven or eight teams, and the Steelers, two years in a row, the league asked Art Rooney to merge his franchise. Uh, he didn't have enough players, and and and, and nor did the Eagles. So he said, will you merge your team? Because we really needed to round out the schedule. And he said, yes, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. I did not want to do that at all. And that that merger with the Eagles actually went pretty well. Then the next year, uh, they were again struggling. They said, Art, will you merge with the Cardinals, uh, who are winless and falling apart? And will you merge with them? And he said, I do not want to do that. And they said, well, we really need you to to have the right number of teams in the league and to keep this thing going. He said, okay, I will do it. So, uh, you know, it's a time of war. So that colored sort of everybody's actions. But uh, just the, the, to think that, uh, you know, an, an owner would do that, uh, merge with another franchise, a rival franchise, two years running, just shows you that the mindset that they had uh, just could not be more different than than today's NFL, where you've really got these sort of city states. Uh, that's the best way to describe them. All these 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 massive franchises. That uh, certainly the greater good is important to them, but they all are looking out for themselves as well, no doubt. Mm-hmm.
0: And and do you see a decisive turning point, looking back, that ensured the NFL's long-term success? Or do you think it was more of just a series of little moves here and there that accumulated into something bigger?
1: I don't see one turning point, uh, necessarily. It's all these things we've talked about, certainly changing the rules, changing the landscape, leveling the playing field. uh, You can see all of that. Now, having said that, I I don't think the, the success was assured until the 1950s uh as i said the 40s uh they barely made it barely made it through the war and then the all american conference comes after them and they barely made it through that uh that that created a a a salary battle i mean the, these players suddenly could play one one team uh, you know the, the aafc also had a draft so suddenly the rights from uh, belong uh, each player uh belonged to a team in the rival league and, and these two teams would bid uh, on, on them, and the player made out. The salary skyrocketed, and suddenly everyone was losing money, big money. And that's why they had to merge uh, or, or fold that AAFC eventually. So, uh, you know, the economics of the sport were falling apart, and we're talking about 1950. Uh, so uh, it was not assured uh, that they were going to make it. I think when you get into the early 50s, the AAFC is gone. You've got the Browns and the 49ers in there. The league has grown a little bit and television is coming in Mm -hmm. and suddenly there is real money on the table for the first time. Uh, I think that's the point we can say like 1953, 19, you know, I'm just picking that year out, but uh, right around there, where it's suddenly like, God, there's money here. We're doing okay. People are watching. I think we've got a a thriving concern here. That's really the that's 33 years into the history of the NFL, and it's like the first time they said, boy, I, I, I think we're doing pretty well here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's one thing that was interesting to me reading your book is that, of course, as anybody who knows anything about the NFL has heard, the 1958 championship game between the Colts and the Giants was is, is often seen as the decisive turning point for the league. But what kind of I think gets lost there is that the league had to make it for almost four decades before they reached what is – seen as that turning point has that decisive moment
1: yes in this book and this telling of, of of history i use that as the last scene mm-hmm. because uh, to me uh that uh, in the in the in the, the the narrative arc that i'm using here which is how did you get from point a which was virtually nothing to point b which is really a successful league uh it culminates it culminates with that 1958 championship game. Because there's 40 million television viewers, uh, and the sport is incredibly dramatic and exciting, and uh, it's a champ. There's a championship on the line, and everything that they had put in motion, uh, these owners uh, going back 25 years or even farther, was on display that day. So uh, it's really the culmination of a lot of moving parts, a lot of decisions that they made. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I see that. I mean, yes, I mean, it is where maybe modern pro football history begins, but the story I'm telling here is the point up to that. And, uh, that that is where their real challenge was. And that was whether they would survive. And so that's, uh, uh it was you know after 58 there was no doubt but uh, you know long before that uh earlier in the 50s it was clear they were going to make it but it was uh, that's as a result of the decisions they made years earlier
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and it's a great story and and to wrap up i want to ask you a few questions i like to ask every guest okay um first off what are you currently reading
1: what am I currently reading? Uh, I just, uh, I, I'm an avid reader. I was an English major. Uh, and I'm reading a book of fiction, uh, The Elegance of the Hedgehog, which I've been uh, wanting to read for quite a while, set in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what's on my nightstand right now.
0: And and what book besides your own would you recommend to everyone listening today?
1: What book besides mine? Yeah. Um, Well, if you're interested in uh, football history, uh, my favorite book, uh, I think it's the best football book ever written, is America's Game by Malcolm McCambridge. Uh, And it really covers the years after the war uh, through 71. It really explains how pro football, it's a different frame than mine. Uh, It's a later period than mine. He really gets into the 60s and the 70s and it uses it through the lens of four franchises, just an amazing book. I love that book uh, for, uh, I used it some as research. This is really a prequel, as I said, so uh, that's that's another great book of football history.
0: Absolutely, I I love it myself. And uh, what's your first sports memory?
1: My first sports memory was I grew up in Dallas, uh, Texas, and, uh, I started, I actually wrote a book about, uh, the book is called Cotton Bowl Days, about growing up in Dallas as a Cowboy fan, uh, in the 1960s, before they were America's team. And, uh, that is definitely my earliest sports memories, going to those Dallas games with my dad, with really with my entire family. Uh, and the, the first game I remember is 1962, they were playing the Cleveland Browns. And so I was uh, six years old and Jimmy Brown ran for so many yards that I think they had to take him out in the fourth quarter, he was exhausted. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, that's my earliest sports memory.
0: And what's the first thing you remember writing?
1: First thing I remember writing, uh, well, uh, I grew up uh, in a, a family, uh, when I got a little bit older, my mother owned a bookstore, that was my first job. Uh, and uh, I grew up in a family that valued books and, and reading and writing, and when I was a boy, uh, 10 years old, 11, 12 years old, and like a lot of kids, playing imaginary games long before video games. Imaginary games in the backyard, whether it be the Cowboys or uh, Southern Methodist University, Mustangs, football or basketball. I would come in and write a game story. I read that Dallas had two newspapers, uh, the Morning News and the Times-Herald. I, later, I started my journalism career at the Dallas-Times-Herald. And, uh, so I would come in from playing outside and I would write game stories that I'm modeling them after what I had read in the newspaper. So, uh, those are long gone, but, uh, I guess, uh, I guess something, something was in the water because, uh, you know, that that's what I wound up doing, but I started writing there.
0: Mm-hmm. And finally, if you could give your younger writing self any piece of advice, what would it be?
1: Uh, I would uh, tell myself, don't try too hard, uh, because certainly, I think that's a mistake that all young writers make is uh, and I'm guilty as could be. Uh, and when I say try too hard, I mean don't don't overuse language, don't overuse. Uh, I mean, the best writing to me, uh, you know, some, if you can uh, sometimes there's too much, just overwrought description. Uh, you know, think long and hard about the adjectives that you use and, uh, and you know, how can you say something uh, more simply? Uh, so uh, I think uh, a lot of young writers try hard. It's part of the experimentation process. It's the natural part of an evolution of a writer. Uh, but I would tell myself, you know, get get to that point. Uh, go ahead and, uh, and start uh, saying more with less because uh, I think that is uh, that is when you really start to take off.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, John, I want to thank you very much for appearing on Pros and Pros today. I I really enjoyed the book and I I enjoyed the conversation as well.
1: Me too. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening to the Pros and Pros podcast. Stay tuned for many more exciting guests in the near future, including Gary Pomerantz, who will be here to discuss his new book about Bob Cousy, Bill Russell, and the Celtics dynasty, The Last Pass. In the interim, please feel free to subscribe and leave a positive review if you've enjoyed the show. Also, you can follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at pros and pros. I'm Michael Wimmer. Happy reading, everyone.